Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The parable of the talents is a story about work assignments. How much work can each person do? How will each person from the least to the greatest be judged for the results of their work? Everyone is accountable for doing this work. What is the work assignment in Matthew? Obviously, for those who have ears to hear, to do the will of the Father of Jesus. In the parable of the talents, to work God's field with the heavy investment of his ordinances until he returns. Not to bury it, but to work it and expand it to all nations and the four corners of the earth. Richard and I work the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 16 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 385 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been paying attention to terminology. Last week, we talked about this very important word, paradosis. In the New Testament, this term refers to two things. On the one hand, it's used by Paul to refer to the teachings of men. It's also used that way by Matthew. It is also used by Paul to refer to the teaching that he received from God. But when he speaks to Timothy, his disciple, who is not an apostle, unfortunately, as you know, Richard, we are in the modern church fast and loose with the term apostle. We like to call people apostle all the time, and it's incorrect, because Timothy is not an apostle. He did not behold the resurrected Lord in the New Testament. What Paul gives to him is not paradosis, because parathiki is a deposit that is entrusted, and that is the term that Paul uses in the letters to Timothy. He doesn't use the term paradosis, because the parathiki is that which is deposited and not to be tampered with. So this is technical terminology, not to be played with, not to be tampered with. Another word that jumped out at me last week, and you touched on this, but I want to amplify it for our listeners so that everyone is clear. 
the word that is translated as abilities in Greek is dynamis, his power, each according to his power. Now, it makes sense. I mean, the translation makes sense because your power is your ability because the power is what makes things work. That's how you put a work in something. You put power in it to make it work. So based on the power, you have the power to carry. You have the power to make something move. You have the power to do something. But I just want people to realize that there are words being used and we have to hear the actual words because just like the words paradosis and parathiki, the word dynamis is a technical word that is used elsewhere and has importance in the story. It really is the ability to do. And, you know, I think you're right, Father. Ability probably is as good as we can get in this context because we do have words in English such as able-bodied. Able-bodied means that you have the strength and your body can perform that action. That's what able-bodied mean, is your body is able to do that thing. So I think this is correct. And, you know, like we mentioned last time, not everyone has the same ability, but no one is off the hook. And that's what's important here. With the ten virgins, they all were the same. They all had the same ability. It wasn't that there were five prudent and five foolish virgins to begin with. They were judged on the basis of what they did. Here, they're talking about the slaves and what they're capable of starting off in the beginning. But no matter where they start, they are still charged with the goods of the Kyrios. Now, this question about the difference between paradosis and parathiki, Paul is imposing the term parathiki on Timothy because Timothy has no say whatsoever in the content of the gospel, just like we have no say. It's handed over and it's locked. You can't subtract from it and you can't add to it. This is absolutely the alpha and the omega of what we have tried to teach on this podcast all these years. You cannot add to the words of Scripture, and you cannot subtract from them. That's why we don't even like to talk about interpretation. That's why the safest thing to do is to go line by line and read through, and instead of discussing what we said about each verse, go back and read each verse yourself. Never fall in the trap of discussing someone's, quote, reading of Scripture. You can listen to someone read Scripture, and then go back and read it yourself. Every time someone says, well, that's your interpretation, Father Mark, I cut them off and I say, what are you talking about? I'm reading what the text says. Do you see what it says? What do you hear it saying? Because this is what I'm reading. What do you see it saying? Let's talk about it. But don't play this platonic game of excuses in sin that that's your interpretation other people say. I don't care what other people say. I'm talking about what I see Paul saying right now. That's the critical point. First of all, Father, I have to second the notion that 
whatever people can read on their own is ultimately going to be what informs them of how they interpret us. Because you read Scripture and you learn from Scripture, and if you know Scripture, then we're all in communion under this text. We're not the reference point. The text is the reference point. So why would you spend more time listening to us than you would listening to Scripture? Okay, that's between you and God. I'm just going to put that out there. The second point is the words of the text is the basis of this reference. I was listening to a New Testament scholar recently, and it was funny because she was talking about how these very clear dogmas that Christians will throw around are often based in very complicated, hard-to-understand texts. And in fact, the clarity of the dogma betrays the text. That actually a debate about what the text is saying is warranted because it's hard to interpret. But it can only be based on the dogma. And this woman gets into trouble because someone makes a blanket statement about a dogma. And she's like, I don't know, because the text in Paul is very complicated. And they get angry with her because the dogma is very clear. So this is the funny thing about theology. You and I, we talk about our problems with theology often, and there's two very specific problems I have with theology. Number one is when they take something that's very clear and make it really obscure and hard to follow. Or number two, when they take something in Scripture that actually is difficult to interpret and hard to follow and assume that it's very clear and won't hear any other interpretation, won't hear any other reading of that text, which is indeed difficult. So go and read the text. Argue with us based on a text. Please. And don't hide behind this demonic statement. It is a demonic statement. Well, that's your interpretation. There are other interpretations. That's an evil statement because it's excuses made with excuses in sins. That's not a statement. That's your interpretation is Minnesota nice for, I don't like what you're saying, and I don't know how to respond because I haven't done the work, so I'm just going to take comfort in knowing someone somewhere disagrees with you. Bully for you. It's like when someone says the fathers say, I have never seen the fathers. I have read John Chrysostom, who is a church father, but I don't know what the fathers are. I have read Basil the Great, who is a church father, and he wrote a lot, but I don't know what the fathers are. I've never seen a single paragraph written by the fathers. The fathers are an imaginary platonic construct that people conveniently whip out when they don't know what to do when they're confronted by a Protestant who knows how to speak Hebrew. The better thing to do is to study Hebrew and Greek and read the Bible and read Chrysostom and read Basil. Come on, friends. The other interesting thing, and this is important, let's define terminology today, Dr. Benton, if you'll bear with me. The other important word that's really interesting and will help people understand what we're saying about the mashal, the parable, is the word talanton, 
which is something weighed. Which really helps explain why he's giving something weighed to each according to his power. It's the burden of responsibility, friends. It's what Matthew has said all along. To whom more is given, more is expected. That's why we're saying that the manager is giving more work to people who are more capable to carry more on their backs. So he's weighing out and giving more to people who can carry more. Understand the terminology and then things will fall in place. Now, when we're talking about terminology, we're talking about one plus one equals two. So if you understand the terminology and you're familiar with the content of Scripture and the historical context, there's room for disagreement. By all means, there's room for disagreement. But there isn't room for disagreement on logic and basic facts. And what we can't abide is, you know, people just shooting from the hip without knowing or at least respecting logic and basic facts. We are... In 2021, as teachers and ministers of the gospel, fighting as hard for basic education as we are fighting for the content of the gospel because both are in jeopardy in this society. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. So the person capable of carrying the most, predictably, was able to take what was given to them and do something with it. Not a big surprise, Richard. Correct. And I think that it's important here, the word that's translated as traded is ergasato, which comes from ergazome, which comes from ergon, which is a work. So... It says traded, that's another level of interpretation from the translator, because really he worked it. He worked the money. He worked with the money, is literally what the Greek says. He worked with the money. So he did something, and I wanted to underline what you just said, Father. Well, how do you make money out of money? You know, you do trading and things like that. I don't know. That's what translator had to figure out. But that he took it and he worked it. That's the point. And this is where it falls in line with the parables of the virgins who went and bought the oil that they needed ahead of time as opposed to the ones who sat and fiddled and didn't do anything. They went and did the work to get the oil they were going to need for later on. It's like the parables of farmers that you find because they don't throw the seed around and then go drink coffee. No, they work the ground. They do work. They're constantly doing things in order to make it so that the seed has the best chance possible of growing and flourishing. It's like what you and I were talking about earlier, Father. The true teacher, the true pastor, isn't just standing up making proclamations, isn't just having group meetings all the time, They're taking the time one by one, each one of their parishioners, and spending the time. And the tragedy is when the priest is no longer able to do that, when the priest is no longer able to have a cup of coffee with this 
family or that family or this parishioner or that parishioner. The true pastor is the one who's able to go and make sure that all of the plants are flourishing. Every plant has what it needs to grow. And so when this slave receives these talents, he has a duty to make these talents grow. That's what he's charged with. But each according to his dinamis. Each one is able to do that in a different way to a different extent. Okay, fine. But no one is given these talents without any expectation that he would work. He must work. He must do. He must do an ergon with these talanda that he's given, according to his dinamis. What's interesting about verse 16 is we just heard about this splitting that followed the pattern of Matthew 24, where you had 10 churches, 10 virgins, and half of them were shut out of the feast. And now you had an individual entrusted with five talenton, right? And he doubled it, and he restored it to 10. Taken in context of the previous parable, it feels like there's something going on here. It feels like you have someone that was given a commission, a parodosis, something was handed to him, and he expanded it to a kind of fullness. Especially when you consider the next verse. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. You have two expanded to four. What is deposited is the teaching and the ordinances of God. Paradosis is translated elsewhere as ordinances. It's translated sometimes as traditions, usually in English when it's used in the negative sense as the traditions of men. In English, it's translated as ordinances in the positive sense when it's the Lord's ordinances. That's how it's translated in Paul's letters elsewhere his commandments, his teachings. So if you are someone who is commissioned with this deposit and you begin with five and it becomes ten, it's expanded to a fullness that includes the nations. If you are someone who is commissioned with this deposit and you begin with two and it expands to four, you have taken this deposit to the four corners of the earth. Either way, whether you accept that reading or not, remains the fact that you expanded and you carried forth the deposit and you worked it and you did something with it. That is the key point. That is your duty. You had a burden laid on your shoulders, which is the mighty and weighty responsibility of the oracles of God. It has nothing to do with money, nothing to do with building projects, nothing to do with the glory of your shiny onion dome. It is all about the oracles of God inscribed in his book. Did you repeat them to everybody? 
as often as possible. Apparently in verse 16, so much so that it expanded to all the nations of the earth. Apparently in verse 17, so much so that it expanded to the four corners of the earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It'll be interesting to see what is going to happen in verse 18. I was just noticing that in verse 16, there were some discussions among scribes. You can kind of sense it because the word is ekerdisen, which means gained. But some manuscripts have epiesen, which means he made. So did he gain it or did he make it? Did the five come from his work or were they just gained by him? So you can see there's something very subtle that the scribes are trying to work out. How much of the gain comes from the work of the slave? That's what they're trying to work out. Now, 17 helps out because there isn't a discussion. They only have ekerdisen. So somehow he gained another two. It's just simple. But the idea that you're entrusted with this and then you have to do with it something. Where does your responsibility stop? If St. Elizabeth becomes a giant megachurch, I mean, I don't know where we're going to fit. We're going to have to buy the entire block, I guess, where we, where we are. There's no empty space. Don't worry about it. It's not because of anything we do. We'll convert it to a homeless shelter and start another small parish. God willing, because when it becomes big, you can't have coffee with the people. And now you're no longer a community. You don't have the ability. The reason why you have to have a big community, why do you have to have a big community? Why do you have to have a giant cathedral of 500 families? Why can't you have 100 churches of five families? Because five families can't keep a building going. In order to have a giant building, you have to have a giant parishioner base. But guess what? Personnel is expensive. And so you can't pay for a lot of priests who actually can cover that area. This, you have to understand, is when the increase happens. I am going to go with the editors of the SBL version who decide on the side of ekerdisen, which is they gained. They did not make it. You have to put the work in. You have to invest. But what you get back, the increase, is not yours to claim. As a matter of fact, who do these five go to? They go to the Kyrios, of course. He doesn't get a bonus. He doesn't get a commission on that five. He gives the whole kit and caboodle back to the Kyrios because it belongs to the Kyrios in the beginning. And the gain was not because of the work that he did, but it couldn't have happened without the work that he did. He has a duty to perform that work with no expectation of what it's going to gain. But whatever gain he gets goes back to the Kyrios because that's where the talents came from. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Lately, Richard, in conversations with people, I have been very blunt about the question of humility. Nobody is humble. 
There is no such thing as a humble person. That is why in Scripture, the human being must be humbled by God. And the human being is humbled by God in martyrdom, which is a kind of prefiguration of the last judgment, which we're coming to in Matthew. The human being is only humbled when he comes to the realization of what he is, which is afar min afar, which we talk about all the time. And in a sense, the process of learning how to hear Scripture without interjecting your ego into the text is the process of realizing that you are dust. I've explained this in sermons at St. Elizabeth. You, you recall, Richard, how the process of hearing the text is the process of being forced back down to the ground level where there are no platonic concepts, where there are no assumptions, there are no abstract anything. You just see things at the ground level. You're at the level of the words on the page. You are back at the level of the ground. You're min adama. You're adam min adama. You're afar min afar. You are humbled by God. All these things are interconnected. So the one who pretends to be humble is playing a game. We said this last week. When someone pretends to be humble, it's either to make an excuse to cover up their own laziness, which is what this parable is dealing with, or it's to get something from you. Either they want to get more work from you to increase their own profit, or they want to look good to increase their own glory. That is why people engage in praise. It is always a self-serving activity. The only time praise is not self-serving is when you truly are looking at someone who is truly in jeopardy and they need a word of encouragement, which in a society like ours, which is puffed up with itself, is few and far between. Come on, friends. Last week, a friend of mine shared a post that showed a picture of a beautiful little girl sitting with a friend, just enjoying her life. And the next week, it showed her covered in rubble and bruised and crippled. That little girl needs a word of encouragement that little girl needs someone to pat her on the back. That little girl needs a word of support. We don't. We don't need praise. We don't need compliments. We don't need to be told how brilliant we are, how wonderful we are. Are you kidding me? We need to get over ourselves, friends. So this business of hiding the master's money deserves no pity, deserves no excuses, deserves no air cover. I know how people hear this, Rich. They think, well, it's not fair that person had the least. Why is the master so hard on that person? 
because the master has high hopes. Because the master wants to build up that person so that they can carry more. Just because a person is capable of carrying the least today doesn't mean that should be true 10 days from now, 50 days from now, or a year from now. Come on. It's like the story I talked about last week, my friend who grew up on a farm. Just because he can't carry very much water because he's a little kid doesn't mean he's off the hook. Just means he has a smaller bucket than his big brothers. That's it. Comparing this with the previous parable of the ten virgins, everyone started off on the same level. There is a single expectation for everybody. So we have a new parable here that puts everyone at different levels, because some people could say, well, you know, maybe some of those virgins, you know, they were sick, and so they slept harder, and they couldn't make the walk to get the oil. You know, are they going to be just as harsh on that virgin? Won't they let that virgin in? You can start to play these games. Jesus beats them to the punch with this parable, where they all start off with different abilities. Okay, what are the expectations on the people with different abilities? How does that work out? And this is how this is playing out. The person who has less of an ability, he's only given one, but what is the expectation? He doesn't act like the other ones do. The other ones worked. The only work this guy did is dig a hole in the ground. He didn't do anything with it. Now, there's a change here because we have iparchunda, which are the riches of the Kyrios back in 14, whereas here we're talking about his argirion, which is specifically silver, like pieces of silver, like a shekel, like he actually has pieces of money specifically. So rather than going and working, he literally sits on them. He takes these pieces of silver and he sits on them. Now, the interesting thing is if you look elsewhere where this word is used, and generally in the New Testament when it talks about riches, it's kind of shady, like you use Argirion to shut up the centurions after Jesus' body is left, so, you know, the story gets out that his people just came and stole his body. Or when someone tries to buy off some of the grace from Peter, Peter is unimpressed by his Argirion. The money is definitely suspect. Argirion is suspect. So, ironically, this guy just sits on it and keeps it. He doesn't work it. Money is great as long as you're giving it away, as long as you're working it. That's the funny thing. The Bible has much more of a problem with greed than it does with money. Now, I know people like to split hairs of like, oh, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And I don't love money. And I'm like, oh, I can tell how much you love money. Show me your bank statement. Just like you're humble. You don't love money. No, you're not humble. I want to be clear. Paul says it in Romans 2. You, oh man, whoever you are, this is my favorite verse, Rich, because it makes the point that Scripture is not interested in you, but it is talking to you. There is no humble person, and there is no person who doesn't love money. So can we please get over ourselves and dispense with this defense of capitalism? None of it is defensible before God, so just chill out, please, and check your ideology at the door. I mean, yes, yes, I know Warren Buffett is such a wonderful guy, but who cares? Who cares? We're talking about Jesus Christ. 
You want to worship the purveyors of the power of death? Do you want me to list them for you? These men are so wonderful. Why? Because they made money. And you want me to believe you fear God? I'm trying to conduct Bible study and you bring me some book with their wisdom? What am I going to learn from them about Jesus Christ? The bishop didn't send me to St. Paul to make widgets. He sent me to St. Paul to preach the gospel and to share the Eucharist with the people. That is not a business venture. It is a ministry. It is a serious kind of business. But the parable of the talents is not a parable about business. It is not. If you are not doing the work with that talent that's been handed to you, then judgment day does not look good for you. You don't know what the return might be on your work. That's not up to you. But only God can help you if you don't do the work with the talent that was handed to you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.